You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This is a really exciting episode for me personally. It's someone I've looked up to for many years from afar. Finally have an opportunity to sit down with who I would suggest is, if not the most successful property developer in Western Australia, one of the most successful, especially over the last decade and certainly with regards to the impact he's making going forward. It's someone who has absolutely smashed through barriers and is nearly coming up to his 20th year in business after starting with a loan for a small entry into the property real estate industry. Paul Blackburn, thank you so much for coming in. It's a real pleasure. Thanks, Trent. Just like my conversations with Tanya Steinbeck, with Kath Hart, with many other leaders in this industry, I want to take it back 25 years ago, back to times when you had no idea you were going to be Paul Blackburn of Blackburn. Tell us what life was like for you coming out of Guilford Grammar. It was a very different aspirational pathway you had to where you've come to today, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I grew up in Gooseberry Hill and went to Gooseberry Hill Primary School, then to Guildford Grammar for high school. And that was probably a pretty typical Hills kid upbringing in the 80s. You know, I have fond memories of that and really enjoyed growing up in the hills of Perth. You didn't know anything else at the time. So I guess, you know, having lots of bush around you and kids and going to school was always pretty good. It was pretty rough back then, I think, compared to what it is now. They're a lot better at particularly boys' schools now and sort of trying to prevent some of the things like the bullying and the culture and the way they're bringing up kids now is the education system's a lot better than it was but you know it was still pretty good being a trinity boy i used to play kids from guilford grammar back in the day and the mud pits out in the playing field back in the day would certainly <laughs> be a memory of yours i'm sure yeah trying to play football in a river uh, and look i'm sure it's still that way today it's part of your upbringing you've obviously moved out of guilford grammar and moved into marketing at Murdoch. I remember in year 12 seeing the career advice person said, look, I don't know what I want to do. And I said, well, you know, Indonesia is going to be big. And I'd been studying Indonesian and really enjoyed the company of the Indonesian students at high school and had a real affiliation with Indonesia. So I ended up studying marketing and management at Murdoch University and Indonesian language and did uh, quite a few of the Asia studies units and just really saw my life in Asia and just loved the idea and traveling up there and saw that Australia's future was going to be in Asia and sort of heard about you know Paul Keating at the time what they were saying and really believed in the future of Australia and our ties and work with Asia I didn't know whether it was going to be in humanitarian work or business or some way or what but I knew that there would be a strong connection with Asia in some way. Your dad owned a real estate agency but you never really had aspirations to follow in his footsteps did you? No I mean I, I never thought I'd end up in property and I never wanted to be part of his business and he started Blackburn Real Estate in 1967 and built up a large rent roll and did a lot of property management and then in the 90s put a syndicate together with Stockland and Rockingham Park and his own syndicate and they did the Subiaco Square development around the train station there when they sunk the train station in Subiaco and that was a large project for its day and there was 220 apartments and 10,000 square metres of retail but it shows only 25 years ago and they couldn't even get three stories approved on a train yeah. station in the middle of Subiaco in a town centre. and But, you know, Dad did that and they did that very well. But about 25 years ago, I think he wanted to semi-retire and ended up selling his rent roll to one of his partners and retiring and fortunately had some time as I grew my business, came and worked on my advisory board. What was it about that business? I'm sure 
you would have had memories growing up of him driving around to properties he was selling and home opens and things like that. There was there's obviously an excitement to that, a little bit of dynamism yeah. there. You never really yeah. had much of an interest in that. No, yeah, I think I probably learned a lot more about property just growing up than I thought because there was always talk about they were the largest property manager in Perth. So yeah, tenants and I remember just issues as a young kid when dad would have to go down and, and get a kick a tenant out. And I think in those days in the probably late 70s or 80s they just changed the locks and stuff like that and when someone wasn't paying rent or <laughs> I heard stories like that and I have a memory as a young child of handing out flyers in front of an apartment building as buyers came as dad was probably in there selling apartments or something and so obviously I, I think just had the conversation around the dinner table and whatnot going into work during school holidays I used to sit with the property management team and those old dot matrix printers pull apart each page and do a thousand pages and fold them and put them in the envelopes because you had to post out every yep. statement. So I think a thousand, Cheap thousand letters there. a month, they would put me in at $3 an hour and get me uh, sending out all the rental statements over school holidays and that sort well, of thing. Well, clearly that wouldn't have been super inspiring to you, but I'm sure working with your dad and under dad and watching him and being a role model would have been yeah, something you've got I good memories of. Yeah, I mean, that's got a lot of work learnings ethic. from there, not just about property, just I think John Blackburn, my father, had a really good name in real estate and property and was very much a leader in the real estate industry and a real innovator of his time and played a fairly significant role in his own way in transforming real estate and property in Perth. And so I think it wasn't what I learned was not just the technicalities of property, but fundamentals of professionalism and integrity and hard work and those sort of things are not necessarily teaching like a classroom, but probably just watching and learning just by being around him was fortunate to have him as my father. So it wasn't property you went into, but it was ice cream. <laughs> I'd travelled on and off during university and went up to Indonesia a lot, just explored all the islands around Indonesia and stayed up there on exchange program, but came back and thought I'd better get serious. So I ran out of money backpacking up there and then came back and got a graduate trainee program. They take in one graduate a year or took in one graduate a year at Peters and Brown's Ice Cream. And really, if less you wanted to go to Sydney, that was one of the only bigger companies with headquarters and marketing departments in WA. Great perks of the job there. Yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> I got moved around sort of two or three months in the sales department, two or three months in marketing, two or three months in the factory, watching how factory works. But unfortunately, I probably wasn't the best choice for the graduate trainee program because after a year or two of getting trained, I then took off and bought a one-way ticket to China and didn't come back for six years. Do you have any idea where your life was going to turn out? How old were you at this time? So it would have been straight after university. So 21, 22, straight after university, did six months of traveling and then worked there for about a year. And yeah. just absolute bones of your ass, traveling around, hostel life. Yeah, it was the famous Lonely Planet guides there. And you, I probably lived on $30, $40 a day for, for most of a five-year period. So 10 to $20 for a shared room in a youth hostel. And I carried my own little gas cooker in my backpack and would cook my own meals and ate rice and some herbs in it for breakfast, lunch and dinner for a long time. Look, the internet wasn't really a thing at that point in time, I assume. Neither were phones or Facebook. How we keep in contact with our parents these yeah, days? Yeah, yeah, no. It was a very interesting time compared to now. It's a real pity that you can't travel now. And I think it's a real pity that younger people or anyone doesn't travel and get away like they used to. I didn't know it at the time, but I would sometimes go six, nine months without really speaking English or any communication with anyone. And I never traveled with anyone else. I just found that I always met more people and learned more things and read more books when I was traveling alone, particularly locals. I think when you're on your own, 
particularly in developing countries. I did a lot of a year in the Middle East, a year in Asia, a bit in North Africa, a year in North America, a couple of years in London, a year in Europe. But I, I found it particularly in places like Asia and South America that if you're on your own, people are, tend to be more willing to just come up and talk to you and got invited to a lot of homes and dinners and meet people. Yeah, and real conversations. All, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And that's why I was there. It was, wasn't a holiday to relax or a party trip. Didn't have the money to buy alcohol. So I rarely drank and... Uh, I just found it really satisfying being able to travel and meet people and um, yeah one of the best trips was I bought a old Russian Minsk motorbike in northern Vietnam in 1993 and crossed the border from China I was trying to get through to Tibet but they closed the border to Tibet so I had to go back through Vietnam and this $300 motorbike you buy it in Motorcycle Street in Hanoi <laughs> and I uh, drove it I think 2,000 k's through Vietnam and a bit into Laos just sleeping on the side of the road or by rivers and cooking as you go and occasionally getting into towns and staying in the backpacker hostels but just trying to make my two or three grand stretch as long as I could back in the day. The interesting parallels between some of your genesis and mine as well, but the the difference is I got a year and a half into that time frame in my mid-20s and I had an itch. You know, I really wanted to get back and start something, achieve something. I didn't think the world was for me in terms of the corporate world. I thought it was going to be that vocational space, but I had that itch pull me back to achieve something in the business world. You lasted five years. There was not points in time in that period where ideas were coming through and maybe you were going to start something. How did you go that whole time and never even consider starting a business as big as today? There was definitely times in that five-year period of traveling the world. I think went to 52, 53 countries and where I you know, nearly gave up and was sick of having no money and I'd work six months in whatever job I could get and then travel six months. Watching your mates de- achieve things Yeah, and home. then definitely, so I probably didn't have much contact with anyone because we didn't really have letters, didn't have internet, email mm. and Facebook. There you and go, all that's that, a big I, difference, right? I didn't have any connection to home and didn't speak to really anyone I know for most of five years. So if I'd came home maybe once every one or two years, a couple of times came home and saw family, but... Otherwise, it was very much on my own. But I really tried to stay disciplined. I very, I remember now very clearly trying to say, this is the best chance to do it. You're in your 20s. You don't have kids. You're not married. You can just travel. I listened to older. Older people had told me at the time, 25 years ago, this is the best time to do it. And I, every time I thought about stopping and going back to Perth, or I was actually going to move to Sydney or live, you know, maybe London, but probably Sydney. But I thought, oh, I won't decide on where I'm going to live until I've done this for a good five years. So I really wanted to get through five years and knew that it would be harder later in life, which it is, and um, thought I'll just learn as much as I can. And um, I also knew that that traveling I was learning more off the people I met than I'd ever learn in any graduate program or working in the city in a building in my 20s I just thought I'll do that later in life and I look back now and I I definitely learned a hell of a lot more in that five-year period backpacking the world than I would have in an office job after university. I think it's very disciplined to have lasted that long in the first place the immense amount of information about the world about people about experiences you would have learned in that time not many people will ever have the time to achieve that they would never give themselves that time frame but there would have had to have been a point clearly there was a point where you decided it was time to come home do you remember what it was that pushed you home to start and did you come home to start no, I Something. distinctly remember it. I was working in London as a recruitment consultant. I was burnt out and working hard in the cold. And I think a lot of Perth people or Australian people find it hard working in London in the big change in environment. Mm. And you're getting low paid jobs and getting the underground to work. And you're used to having sun. And, and I thought, no, I want to be a dive instructor. So I went down to Dahab in the Red Sea in Egypt to 
see that and I ended up just calling my boss and quitting in around the year 2000 and just said look I'm, I'm not coming back to London and asked my friend to pack up my room and sublet my room in London and stayed down in Dahab and uh, wanted to become a dive instructor so I went and did my dive master traineeship for three months there and just didn't take tourist diving and the Red Sea on the Sinai Desert there but then when I came back to Perth I did that and the novelty of that actually wore off after six months yeah. sort of the the grass is greener on the other side of the fence it, I, I sort of worked out it was equally as brown in a way so I kind of or sandy I, or sandy <laughs> yeah and then thought geez I don't know what to do now so I went back overland through the Middle East Syria and Lebanon and Israel for six months and Jordan and whatever and then went back to Perth for summer and and I was sort of out of money and not sure what to do and I was going to head to Sydney and get a job in marketing but then my father had a project they were project marketing for a developer in manager of townhouses and they said oh it's pretty easy to get your sales ticket can you just help us with this so I thought for the summer I'll just stay here and help them with that and really enjoyed it talking to buyers and going through the home with them helping them find the right townhouse for them and making my first sort of decent money I thought oh geez I might do this for a bit longer and do you reckon that was always a sneaky ambition of your dad's to get you back at uh, some point? Actually, I have never asked him, but no, I never th- don't think I was very clear. I'd never sort of worked for his business or a family business. I, I did a year with them, but that was the maximum. I thought I'd just do it to help out for a year and sort of spend some time in Perth after so, so long away and then head off again. But it ended up being more interesting and exciting than I thought. And then after a year or so, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and set up my own business and got a loan from National Australia Bank for about nine. 900 grand and set up my own project marketing business and it was really just me and an assistant going to developers and project marketing helping with design advice for apartments and marketing advice and also handling the sales but I also purchased the strata management portfolio and four or five property management clients from what was called Blackburn and Joyce Real Estate at the time. Tried to turn that strata management business around and it was turning into a fairly good good business, the, the strata portfolio. So but it was a it only sort of ended up being five or ten percent of the of the main business. But the main thing was always the property development project marketing consulting in the mm. first five years as a project marketing consultant, but then going into doing our own developments fifteen years ago. So, and, and this is an interesting point, even back then when you started Blackburn, it wasn't a property development company. You bought a Strider roll, bit of cash flow coming in from the side, and your personal job is still essentially a project sales agent. Yeah. At no point yeah. in time, at that point, you're thinking, I'm going to be a big property developer one day. No, yeah. I mean, I thought I'm going to make this into a big company. I was very confident I would. I didn't know exactly it would be a property developer. It took a few years for me to realized that probably where is where it was heading but I actually thought it would become the biggest project marketing business yeah um, we did in Western Australia and we had an office of project marketing business in, in Melbourne at one point as well but I think I uh, didn't really see what it, exactly what it would be but I was very confident that I knew how to make it into a, a big successful business but I guess everyone is when they start out a business but there was certainly times where I you know may not have made it because I started in March of 2003 so this March coming is 20 years and the first five years or 10 years I think I was quite disciplined, just sort of drove a $2,000 Commodore and lived in a small two-bedroom apartment in Subiaco and didn't really spend much and lived quite frugally. And just my travel was really just sort of still, when I went for a month a year, just backpack around Asia or something and still did quite cheap travel 
for the first 10 years. But that got me through the GFC because that hit in 07 and quite a few of the developers didn't end up paying us on. We'd had about a thousand sales we'd made and we're owed five or 10 million over a four or five year period. Mm. So probably 800 a year. And after cost, that might have made 200,000 a year in profit. And I didn't end up getting paid for a lot of those sales. So that really hurt. But we got through that 07 downturn. But I actually ended up getting paid on some of that and we cut costs. And use that money from all the sales we were making. And I would do a lot myself rather than pay a sales agent. I'd do most of them. And that created enough money to buy a site sort of around then. So, Was life more or less complex back then relative <laughs> to your capacity at the time? Um, I think it was probably quite simple back then because all I was doing was work. And for the first 10 years, I think I'm starting the business. There's no way, you know, I didn't have kids or a family. If I did, I wouldn't have seen them. I was sort of regularly at the office till 10 at night and worked all weekends. So I think in starting your own business, it's hard to define what's work because if you're not sleeping and even then when you're sleeping, sometimes you're working, you know, you dream about work or whatever. But if I wasn't asleep, I was pretty much working in a way. Even if you're at a restaurant or a bar, if I go for a walk afterwards or whatever, you're thinking about work and that, that's working. Well, it gets harder these days with the accessibility of the phone, yeah, emails, yeah. you're never off. That's right, yeah, yeah. Your first development opportunity do you remember what it was? Yeah, we had an opportunity come up to buy 84 Subiaco Road, which was 18 apartments. And they were old, sort of run-down, three-storey cream brick walk-up. And I only just had the money to buy them after I started the business sort of 03. So that was around the 06 time. One lady owned it and she uh, wanted to sell it. I bought them, but I really didn't... Ha- I only had just had enough money, but got delayed settlement on those and possession before settlement to refurbish them and I worked with a friend from university and refurbished the 18 apartments kitchens and bathrooms and fortunately the market was very strong in 06 we ended up selling them with a good profit so I then swore the secret would be just to do one development at once and not do the next one that's where a lot of developers go go wrong they take on too much so I was very disciplined and then went okay I'm just going to then build slowly and I'll never syndicate. I'm not going to capital raise. I'm just going to reinvest every dollar I've got for the next project. So I've never, never really syndicated. We've done a few development management agreements where they're the landowner, but we always match 50-50 for equity and whatnot. But wanted to have a very unique model, which is pretty rare that people actually, the developers are providing their own capital, but only do what I was capable of doing on my own rather than bringing in others' money and doing more. So I thought, okay, I'll just do what I can do on my own and touch wood. I've heard that one every five you lose money on in property development, but I haven't lost one yet. So I've kind of, there's been a few that we've got our equity back and a small profit where they haven't been good results financially, but I think the good thing is is they've all been pretty good quality and built a good brand and reputation and even the ones that haven't made a high return, I think it's helped build our brand with hopefully pretty happy clients in them. After this renovation project, I guess, what was the next choice? Where do you feel like you made your big break? That one ended up actually being quite profitable in that it was a good project and because I could refurbish them and sell them before completion, I actually you know, only soon after settlement of the land got the full development done, you know, so within a year or in and out made a good profit. But I reinvested in buying a couple of sites. We've sort of done one a year, but a whole range of ones are generally around, they were sites around two to five million and we would buy them. Ideally, with we try and get about a year to settle so we could try and get DA and pre-sales before settlement of the land. So although we might make a low margin, I always worked on IRR, so return mm. on equity. So I thought, 
if I can have a better quality product that's slightly cheaper than our competitors or the market, how do I do that? And the only way to do that is to focus on return on equity and try and make a 20 to 30% return on your equity each year, which might only be a 15% profit margin in the development. Mm. But you can actually do that, make a 20, 30% return on equity every year with only making a 15% profit margin. So that was kind of the model. And I thought, how do I get cheaper than others and better quality than others and give people value for money? And the only way to do that is to move quick. So from where you put capital out, preserve capital as long as possible, settle in a year, ideally get DA pre-sales or as much as you can there. So ideally we start construction within three to six months of settling on land. If you don't do that, it gets very hard for our model to work because we would need to raise the prices for the quality we give. Is that the secret to the fact that you're one of the only developers I've seen in the last few years that have actually still sustained a very high level of sales conversion, even in times when most other apartment developers mm, at this point maybe. have either been too scared or have gone broke? I mean, it's a weird one. I think I don't really look at the market much. I think that for what we do in larger, higher-end apartments in undersupplied areas... I mean, we did a few developments around East Perth and areas where there's a fair bit of supply and medium level demand, and, and they're just not profitable. I think we've seen that with one of the other larger developers in Perth, that it's just very hard to make a profit out of in high rises in the city and, mm. and surrounding areas. So I thought, well, people are prepared to pay 20, 30% more for apartments in the Western suburbs. The build cost is the same. Nearly the same yeah. When you do the numbers, if you pay a bit more for the land, you scale it up. It does, the land's only 15% of an input cost. Mm. So it doesn't matter if you pay 20% to much of the land that takes land 18% of an input cost so it doesn't really matter too much as long as you get the right block of land so feasibilities can show anything but so much of it comes down to gut feeling so I just look for iconic sites but I didn't look at the market much to be honest I just thought I'm going to do one a year be disciplined just do one development every year and I've done that for 15 well, that years that would have or been so. one of the hardest um, things for you Paul because you'd probably be thrown opportunities left right and centre over the last mm, 10 years especially but that the secret most someone told go, me, that looks right yeah someone told me years ago the secret in property development is not what the development sites you buy it's the one you don't buy the developers that are successful are the ones that are very disciplined around what they buy and what you don't buy is far more important than what you buy mm. so I've always tried to remember that and I say no to 70 opportunities before finding one and it's got to be a really prime site where I know people want to live you can always build apartments somewhere and you'll always find investors to buy it or whatever but if we want to find owner occupier stuff I want somewhere in areas where there's a high median house price low supply which you've got very low supply and high demand I mean any business makes sense right any business model if you can find something where there's high demand low competition then that's where you want to be and that's what I see in Perth high-end apartments and not just high-end but going the large ones we can get pools spas gyms saunas and resort facilities like crown you can only do that in the big ones where the land's 20 to 30 million and there's not a lot of competition in that in Perth there's a lot of competition in the two to ten million dollar sites for 50 apartments or 100 apartments, but not a lot once you get up into that bigger game. So that's why I thought I want to be in that. But it, you had to crawl before you could sprint, right? There were developments in between that yeah. uh, I'm sure you cut your teeth on. Yeah, so a lot of them, you know, 50 to 100 apartments, that was a lot of our first ones. And we could keep doing them, but they were just harder to really give the iconic thing we wanted. So once the business was successful and there was a fair bit of capital and whatnot, the only thing that motivated me to keep going in the industry was really saying, well, we can do some really 
iconic buildings. Look at these ones that really are transformational in WA and we've got four or five of them on now that I think will be looked back on as sort of groundbreaking developments oh, in WA. the legacy buildings. That, yeah, you know, will be around for the next hundred years. Let's scroll it back a little bit again. At 31 years old, you had 100 staff. Was it yeah. a good idea at the time? Um, I was always trying to be very disciplined to not grow too quick and keep small and stay profitable. But even that, my natural tendency, you know, more so than other entrepreneurs was to go big and whatever. So even factoring in every day, I thought, keep it small, keep it easy, simple. I still ended up growing to 110 staff <laughs> and in, in the first five years or so. And I had an office in Brisbane and Melbourne. I thought that was keeping it because I'd been traveling the world for five years. I thought big is setting one up in every country. Small is just setting one up in every state in Australia. So that was a real relative, right? So I, I sort of thought I was keeping it small. But in hindsight, now I look back and go, you know, what was I thinking? Like, and that wasn't doing property development. That was property development, but property development consulting for developers where we'd help find sites, design the apartments, do the marketing. And we, we pretty much did everything except for actually fund it. So mm. that's when I thought I'll do it my own and stop doing that because I felt like we were providing most of the IP and making a very small margin out of it. But I just thought we had nine different operating divisions and over 100 staff. And I thought, do you know what? I'm going to get back and keep it simple. What's lowest staff numbers? What's their unique skill in whatever? And it was property development. And that's your competitive advantage. That was our competitive advantage. And there was not a lot of good competition around, whereas real estate project marketing was very competitive, low margin, high competition, property development's higher margin, low competition. So I thought, well, I want to do that. I felt I knew how to do it. I just needed the money and we just slowly built up the capital of our own capital and just started doing our own. But with property development, we probably have a thousand people working for us on one day of the week. But the good thing is now in property development, I only have sort of 20 in-house staff and we can then focus on the quality of the product and strategy rather than people management issues and outsourcing as much as we can. We outsource construction. Many of our competitors don't outsource construction they're builders that develop we outsource architecture engineering so much marketing we outsource now we do the sales in-house still because that's what we started out doing 20 years ago so we continue to do the project marketing in-house and sales the development management we do in-house we outsource some project management but the secret is we just want to outsource as much as we can it keeps overheads low it's a very cyclical business development you can have no income for two or three years while you're waiting for a development to finish so Mm. Having it agile and small is a good thing. So we shut down our project marketing division five or 10 years ago and stopped selling for other developers. And that was a huge leap to go from selling for others and having this business that had a big overhead to saying, do you know what? I'm only going to go with one developer we sell for now and that's me. That's you, yeah. And that was a huge responsibility with five or 10 salespeople. And but it helped you focus, to- I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we just, we have to, we've had two of our salespeople been there 10 years and whatnot, and just every year to to supply enough stock to keep salespeople there and to cover the old whole overhead and run the business now, it is a bit, we have to buy one site a year or the business then goes down. And that site must be a legacy. And it has to be a great project. Yeah. And if you buy the wrong one, then you're bogged in, you've got a whole year of income that is gone. So, yeah. And five years of work. You can dig yourself into a hole. And I guess when you're in those price points you're digging yourself into a hole with a big bulldozer very quickly that you want to make sure that hole is 
one that uh, is going to be profitable or fruitful yeah. going forward. But I, 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 it just makes sense now. It took me a while to learn that in the first 10 years. But now we have probably 100 times the income we had when we had 110 staff. And in developments, we've got 20 staff and 10 or so in property management, mm. three in finance broking and just outsource everything else. But our income would be 100 times more with what we've got 80% less staff than we had 10 years ago. Can you tell me the project or the time in the last 19 years you've enjoyed the most? They've all, all unique in their own ways. The boutique ones are just fantastic. You know, they're nice to be able to do these nice ones that of, of 20 to 40 apartments. I mean, of the ones, four years ago, I bought the Subiaco Pavilion Market site and I lived over the road for five years and lived in Subiaco. And that's probably been the one that finishes construction soon in three months. But that was a, a big one. And, and particularly because it had been on the market for sale, the site for five or 10 years, and everybody looked at it and said, it can't work. It's not viable. And I, I just thought, this can, how can it not work? It's mm. in a town center on a train station, had a DA in place for 16 stories, but we ended up needing to redesign. We went less apartments, larger apartments, but we went up to 24 stories, opened up the ground level for for sort of markets, cafes, bars, restaurants. So it became a public space on the, in the centre of Subiaco. And that opens in, in this Christmas. But, you know, that's a really iconic project. We've got a... Um, Is that the one that you're most proud of? Yeah, I mean, we've got to finish it. Yeah, you know, of course you do. it looks great already. Like I've seen it finishes by Christmas. It is a fantastic project. But saying that, there's so many good ones that the Grove after that is probably another level up. It's right on the corner of Cottesloe, Peppermint Grove, and Claremont. We've got views over Peppermint Grove to the river one way and views over Cottesloe to the beach the other way. And again, that was 16,000 square meters. And we won that in a very competitive bid three years ago or so. And got a DA for 230 apartments but the LDP had a um, local development plan on the site had 364 apartments indicated and we ended up doing 30% less apartments. I bet the town um, of Claremont like that. Well sort of but it was a strange one because they, they said no we have we have 364 apartments but we only want eight levels but if you do that over eight levels you end up with the thing that looks like Royal Perth Hospital mm. built like just you know concrete to eight levels all yes, the way around box. with terrible apartments that look at each other over a little corridor yeah. and so well you can do that but look awful yeah. and we went through the design advisory that's why i think jdaps and the design advisory committee now are so good and we said well we just want to do 250 apartments or something rather than 364 but if we do that if we do it over 10 or 14 stories we can give half the land back as a public park so just after we bought it we gave half the land back to green open space and much of it public access and public park so what a great outcome for the community and it shows how beneficial height in the right locations appropriate height in the right locations can be good unfortunately in Perth there's a lot of weather there's inappropriate height in the wrong locations but height shouldn't there should be no fear of height and, and more height in the right areas in the right locations and the sites like we've done are the right locations and that's shown by as well most of the buyers are locals so Grove is just an, um, an amazing project it's very similar to one Subiaco in size but that finishes in a year's time it's nearly sold out Subiaco's sold out except for one penthouse I think and the Grove's only got 10 left of 250 so 500 apartments worth 600 million in the two developments and I think there's a, only a handful left that's pretty impressive Paul I don't, do you even expect yourself to have sold that many that um, quickly to be honest I actually did I just know there's so much demand for this stuff but you've got to keep 
the price good and the quality high. We sold them at a very good price. It's still a viable project and making a fair return, but we were able to start construction two years ago on Subi and a year ago on the Grove. So to build those buildings now would be $50 million more. Mm. So we're very lucky to be able to we'll start next year. That'd be a lot more. So the timing, we were lucky, but because we'd sold them at very affordable prices, but the project still stacked up and worked. So time if, is a yeah. big factor for apartments, isn't it? I think when I look at uh, development, so uh, I look at the Bottle Yard development in on Palmerston Street in Perth, which is where Simone and I have rented for quite a while. It's an award-winning apartment building. It's a beautiful place, but the timing of it, uh, the developer collapsed and went broke. Mm, and yeah. I think that from my understanding of large format apartment development, time is your biggest risk, is that you can start something and if you can't get those things out of the ground and sold in a certain mm-hmm. time frame, then the market could erode away every good it decision is, yeah. you've made. And I, I agree in some respects, but disagree in others in that I've released one a year for 15 years and I don't look at the market a lot. If we find stuff where there's good, strong, natural underlying demand from owner-occupiers because there's a, a significant demographic shift towards apartments, then it does make a bit of a difference the market going up and down, but certainly projects where it might be 50% investors or more, that's when they either make it or break it. And that's Mm. why I decided to move out of that market 10 years ago. And if it's relied on a lot of strong investor sentiment and people come on and go, yeah, great, I'm going to buy this, there is a bit more risk there as a developer because things can turn. But if we're doing your well-priced, high-quality product in really good locations, yeah, we want to move as quick as we can when the market's good, but I'm not that concerned on that. We're just going to release one a year. It would take World War Three to have us not release a project every year and it might happen actually so but i you know it would be very rare that we wouldn't release a project every year it would have to be something significant going on in the world to stop us releasing one project a year you've mentioned it a few times now you don't look at the market too much would you consider yourself a property expert or a marketing expert or a development expert um, I think the secret in development, you have to be an expert at everything. So if you, apartments is so technical that if you make a mistake on anything, you have to get a hundred things right. So you have to be a financing expert. I think a lot of our skills actually in, in finance numbers and maths, mm-hmm. and a part of that's risk management and risk assessment in looking things at numerically and percentage chance of this happening and percentage chance of that happening. We as an organization and me personally think a lot like that in terms of risk management and applying percentage chances to everything. So thinking mathematically, but also combining that with an ability to understand your market and design good quality product. If you're not designing what people want, well, and that's got to be fanatical. Like the apartment development, you have to whether the bath is two inches to the left or the taps to this shade of green or grey, that makes or breaks developments. And it can't be just luck that we've had you know so many successful developments over fifteen years. And I think it must be the attention to detail is a big thing and not missing anything. But mm. having to be a marketing expert, a um, finance expert, understanding your market, design expert. You know, like we don't just rely on the architects to design the building. We're very very involved with that. Mm and brief them very clearly and work with them daily to work on the design of buildings and being a business expert and a management expert too you know knowing what to outsource what cost to have in-house how to run it lean and mean because you can be waiting three or four years for income for a project like if you start a development you're not getting any money back for five years so mm. that's a big substantial cost risk so you've got to be a, an accounting expert too yes you know, so you know and know where you're not an expert how to surround yourself and have the people management skills to surround yourself with people that do fill those gaps in your own knowledge and ability a lot of people i've spoken to casually about you have given me the impression that you're a bit of a cyborg when it comes to your work ethic 
hmm. that uh, you don't stop. Oh, I'm so cyborg positive. Yeah. <laughs> ah. I guess if it's focused on the job at hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in terms of yeah. your capacity to work in detail at high levels of stress and pressure and constantly yeah. over years, do you ever feel burnt out? Yeah, look, the only reason I, I do have... I a very high work pace, but I think it's unfair to compare that to someone who may say only get 20 days leave a year and have two kids at home. I mean, I, for the first 10 or 15 years, particularly, I always traveled two or three months a year, but I would do probably the equivalent of two years work in the nine months I was in Perth. So therefore, I think people look at and go, how do you do that? We well, do that because I, I take a fair bit of time traveling. Mm. And But when I'm in Perth, and particularly before I had kids, if I was in Perth, I was working. So I could do a lot. But if you did that and you only had 20 days leave a year, you would burn yourself. I still burnt myself out. I would work so hard and then I'd burn myself out and then I'd nearly collapse and then go on a a trip and do... I used you know, mostly adventure trips, sort of hiking or mountain biking somewhere in Asia. So your work is essentially a series of sprints. Yeah, and go really hard for a period of time and then collapse and go away and try and get myself back together and get perspective again and then get back into it. So, yeah, but it's just being very focused on it. And I'm just purely driven by knowing that at the end of the day, I've got my name on the business and money can be won or lost, but, you know, you you can't repair a damaged brand. So there's a lot of pressure on me to make sure that we deliver the promise and make good apartments. And particularly now they're in the Western suburbs, I'm living there and kids go to school there. You've really got to make sure that we can't please everyone, but we do a pretty as well as we can to make everybody as happy as we can. What's next for Blackburn? I think now we're certainly onto something. The new strategy five years ago was just to stick to larger, higher iconic projects. We thought about whether we do townhouses or smaller developments of 50 apartments or whatnot, but really said, no, our, our unique thing is these larger two to 300 apartment projects with usually commercial at the bottom. I've got two great projects we're going to be announcing soon that are sort of three or 400 million each, and that's going to keep the Blackburn Property Group Apartment Developments Division busy. Property management's a big focus of ours. We've got a thousand apartments we property manage now and we're going to be doubling that over the next two or three years. That'll be at 2,000 within three years. A bit through acquisitions but also growth. So Blackburn Property Group's that and really just We've got such a strong team right from our reception administration team right through, right through to the um, directors. There's a really strong business there. So it's really um, just making the business better, not bigger. I don't necessarily want to get bigger. We've got a billion dollars worth of developments on at the moment. So they take five years and they're two or 300 million each. So that's an, enough and 30% of them will sell to investors so that's going to feed a lot of new managements and finance broking business so they'll continue to grow but just get better and do good iconic projects for Blackburn developments but we may also over next year just start rather than doing smaller developments we may start financially backing um, smaller developers like the Mies of 10 or 20 years ago good people that have good projects that we help finance them we may be able to offer some advice and perspective from a board level as well so i'd really be interested in sort of helping some younger smaller developers sort of help them grow through capital and advice and maybe set up a new business in partnership with some people and i'm not quite sure but i I think strategic alliance rather than setting up the businesses and running them myself i see a huge benefit in strategic alliances using our strategic knowledge and capital to partner with good companies and good people they can run it and do the day-to-day work but we provide 
strategy experience in financing. And I don't know in much detail on all the areas yet, but I think in mezzanine lending, could be preference shares and just backing financially other developments, good developments and good people, and have maybe five or 10 people around Perth that we help financially back and partner with. But also getting into different things like expanding finance broking is going pretty good, but we, we might look to partner with other finance brokers and see how we become bigger and better in that. Sounds like you've got a little bit of a penchant towards mentoring, maybe giving back a little bit. Yeah, I think, and also I did say 20 years ago, that was one of the main reasons for wanting to, to make some money was I was quite frustrated in the time I had through Asia and seeing a lot of the issues and not having the ability to do much about it. And I thought, okay, well, really, if you're going to do anything, you've got to make money. And it was a 10-year plan there, and I'm nine years over time on that. So mm. now I'm going to get back to doing the things I set out to do, which is can't really create change and make a difference in the world that easily. And it, certainly having some capital behind us does help achieve that. You don't need the capital. You can do it without money, but it really makes it a lot easier and you can have a lot more impact with some of your own funding behind you. So doing that, and I'm not sure exactly what, what I'm doing is just taking a bit of more time off this year to get the headspace to think that through. But really the definition of success for me in Blackburn Property Group is seeing it operate and grow and thrive with happy clients, happy staff, and a fair return for shareholders without me necessarily running the day-to-day operations, which I haven't been. I have a really strong senior leadership team and they have a strong management team under them that are outstanding people and without doubt the best in the industry and just helping them do their jobs better rather than doing it with them. It sounds like a very formative time again in your life, Paul. Obviously, you spent 19 years in between now and the last formative time in your life. And it sounds like you're getting to the start of maybe a new and exciting chapter that grows on everything you've achieved now. Well, March is 20 years since starting the business. So that's definitely a major change. And I, like I said, it was 10 years was the goal to do it and then make some changes. And But I I think I've got a... um, five-year-old and and an eight-year-old and every second I'm not at work I'm with them pretty much Mm. so I've not been so busy like you see some founders and shareholders or senior executives that never see their kids but I see them a lot and you know every minute of holidays and weekends I'm with them all the time but I certainly don't think it's enough so having more time with family and also more time personally because you know don't feel physically and mentally the best and as good as you should I don't think so just trying to focus on health and fitness a bit more and hopefully that may I can then more effectively use the capital we've got to creating change and um, giving back in a more productive way. Any advice you would give to firstly your younger self in your early 20s and someone in their early 20s or late 20s or early 30s looking up to you who have learned a lot today? still looking for that defining factor on how the hell anyone becomes Paul Blackburn in 15, 20 years from now. Any of the advice that I've got, it's actually just stuff that was given to me by older people at the time or a thing that people told me and I've stuck to. And, and not necessarily advice, things just come from, I guess, people you're surrounded with. You, you get influenced by the people you grow up with or you've you're around and you become like them just naturally. So it's not necessarily just advice that I got, but I think the the things that I learned just by being around them and or advice that I got growing up and over the last 20 years is the same things I'd say now to people is that A, try and do the right thing. There's always going to be some disagreements, whether they're contractually with consultants or suppliers or staff, there's always going to be gray areas. And just, I always go, well, A, what does the contract say? But B, what's the right thing? And 
then if I'm not sure, then I ask a few other people what they think the right thing is and yeah. then always err on. And, and at times that's cost us money and sort of even when we legally didn't need to pay something or shouldn't have, just gone, well, let's just do that. And I think you get that back 10 times over. So that philosophy of building your brand and focusing on doing the right thing has really paid off and might be short-term pain for long-term gain kind of thing and just sometimes dealing with problems before they become a big problem. And that's something I think I learned from my father. He was very much like that. Like, don't ever get in any arguments with people. Just sort it out. It's not Mm. worth it. So people think they might have saved five grand by not paying someone or, you know, if there was a grey area in a contract and that person unfairly claims five grand, might say, well, I don't owe that to you. But often, even if the person's wrong or not 100% right, we'll we'll do it because it costs me more than five grand in pain and hassle and brand damage or whatever yeah so it's it's even if you know you're right and well you think you're right i've generally just gone i don't want an argument and we'll just sort it out another one was just always surround yourself with people better than you and smarter than you in their particular area of expertise you know so my job's not to know everything it's just to have the skills and ability to surround myself with people that collectively we do know more than our competitors and that's what I focus on very clearly is trying to go what are the skills gaps how do I surround with myself with people that complement my shortcomings and I'm terrible at most things I'm just good at a couple of things so I just try and <laughs> try and focus on what I'm good at and fill the gaps and surround myself with people that are much better and smarter at me and have more experience than me in that area in which we're weak on you know I learn a little bit about everything about it but hopefully have experts whether it's in accounting marketing finance design best architects best builders we always pay top dollar to try and get the very best people our developments at the moment we've paid more probably but we're using multiplex to build them we probably pay more for our architects and designers and consultants our marketing spend would be double anyone else's but you know, I think it looks better. Your, your marketing and your displays, for example, are the best I've ever seen. People seem to scrimp on that. It's funny on marketing and out of $300 million development, marketing would only be 1%, $3 million of the $300 million. You can say cut that to two and it makes 0.33 of a percent of a yeah. difference. It's really not that... But it could be the difference between 30, 40 apartments being sold. Yeah, and the project starting construction and making a viable margin or failing and killing your brand and losing money. So I never skimp on marketing and I think everyone else does. I think it's crazy. And don't skimp on people and wages. We like to think we have the best people in the industry and as they deserve to should be paid better. And I think we're known for paying at the very higher end of the industry for each role, whether it's an admin role or whether it's a development director role or CFO role. What that allows you to do is leverage off the best people in Perth. Yeah, it's almost in a way I look at it a bit like profit share, you know, although we're, we're paying a fair bit more, I think they're contributing to in, line, in profit and being driven by getting right people and rewarding them well to do a good job and means we can retain and attract the best people. But the other, looking after yourself physically and mentally, I haven't done a great job at times, but there's no way I could have worked and stayed as focused as I did if I didn't try to exercise every day and try and get eight hours sleep a day and try and eat well and don't drink too much, which I don't do a very good job of sticking to sometimes. <laughs> (laughs) but like most people but you know trying to stay focused on that and try and do a pretty good job of that it's very hard to work at a very high rate and intensity if you're not physically and mentally fit so doing that and like I said looking after people and always thinking about the end client and that's because we start out as a project marketing agency we become client driven whereas a lot of our competitors were builders and they become cost driven they Mm. look at how to make money is by saving money Mm. we make money by spending money yes and that's why our developments have 10 to 20 million dollar 
was more in them for exactly the same building than another most of our competitors would whether it's the quality of the wallpaper or the furnishings and I just think we get that back it's very hard to know put the numbers on it and if you yeah. look at it from a project management point of view it doesn't make sense it's like having faith really but I yeah. do it anyway because it it seems to be working right so yep. I kind of go I know that we have got stronger revenues and stronger profits than a lot of others and good thing is the buyers are also doing very well out of it so it's a, a true win-win-win and there must be something about what we're doing that's right so I think it's that focusing on what does the market want not what we think it wants and really understanding the market so when we launch a project myself the directors the development managers everyone is there talking to buyers and engaging with the sales team daily we don't even have a, a sales manager in-house we have the development managers dealing directly with the four or five five or six salespeople. so that keeps them in touch with the market and the development managers are down there talking to buyers in displays every week and I think that's a real key is talking to your customers and not losing touch with customers and we also bank with the major Australian banks we've got really good relationships with major banks and we stand behind our projects and put our own equity in and have really really strong support from major banks and not then needing to go to second tier lenders that would be a lot more expensive, which means we can't deliver the quality at a low price like we do. Bonus question. Tim Gurner has entered Western Australia. You are of the same ilk, have a high performing. He stands out in the East Coast, you stand out in the West Coast. Do you see Tim's entrance into WA with the Chillingsworth building being a threat to your patch or do you welcome it and go, well, if he's coming here, it means it must be a great time to develop in Perth? Well, firstly, I think the Gurner model is very different to ours. We provide our own equity and do our own developments and I guess we've tried to stick to being a developer. We don't do so many of the DMAs or use um, others' equity or whatnot. So it's a different business. I think competition's great. I think the more that come in, the better. It only drives us to be better. And I think there's enough demand to do four or five of these projects a year. We probably could do four or five a year, but I don't want to. I only want to do one. So Mm. someone else has got to do the other three or four. (laughs) And I'd much rather there's someone who does better quality He seems to do it well. Yeah, I don't know a lot about the detail of what they do over east. I've seen some of the pictures that look good of the common areas and, and whatnot, but I actually don't know much about the developments they they do and I I don't know Tim but I think we looked at that site closely in the Chillingworth and we're working with Grange Consulting for a while to try and look at doing it but we just weren't able to try and find a way to make it viable and they are going for a new DA at the moment we're trying to get the plans amended with substantial changes um, because it's not viable as it is and I think without a new DA, the project, hopefully it goes ahead. I think at the land price they were talking about and with construction prices now, if it does, I think it'll be very marginal. That's why we decided not to do it. Mm. But hopefully they pull it off and are able to find a way to make a profit out of it. Well, it'd be transformative really you think about entering Sterling Highway with a building like that and then moving along with it, moving into the Grove. Yeah, some fantastic bookends to the highest value parts yeah. of WA. Yeah, you know, those town centres really need it. In Subiaco, around that train station, it's crazy that that's three storeys around the train station, only done 20 years ago. What a wasted opportunity. You know, mm. That should be like five or six high-rises of 20, 30 levels there, and Rockaby Road would be buzzing and it would yeah. be... A, a real uh, well luckily you've gone in, in now and ironically you've done it yeah. across the road from where your dad yeah, did it yeah yeah. and I lived over the road in the three story ones and yep. they spent 10 million 20 years ago sinking a railway line underground 20 million or whatever a lot yeah. of taxpayers money and then put three story walk up <laughs> apartments above it it was just one of the biggest planning mistakes in WA's history I well think. I and think in 20 years they'll look back at how strict they've been on height 
now and call that a mistake as well. But you know what? Yeah. We work through yeah. all well, the that's why red I look tape. At Subi, whether it's 24 levels or 34 stories, what would it matter? No. And it would have added another two or 300 people to Rockaby Road. Would you have taken it up the last time? Well, 10? you look at Subiaco, each of these developments add $600,000 a year in rates to the local council and it would only cost maybe a hundred grand a year more for council to have those extra ratepayers and members in the, in the community. So there's a 500 grand a year profit from each of these developments to the councils, which should take pressure off rate increases, lower rates and improved services. So yeah. it's a the push great on POS. thing having that density. But yeah, I mean, there's so many benefits of it. And I, I just think there's so many benefits and it is only a vocal minority that are against these big developments. But so there has been some height in the wrong areas as well. But town centres like one Subiaco, large iconic sites like De Grove and the West Village one we're doing, which is our biggest project yet, we're just launching for sale now in Karanup Shopping Centre. Those ones, their density in the right location. It hurts nobody. Yeah, there'd be some people that have a preference not to have it, and but in the greater good, I, that's why the state government's done that. It, you know, they're looking at the benefits of everybody, not just a vocal minority, and what's good for the state, and that's starting to come through. You know, it's starting to happen. Paul. It's been a fantastic hour. I really appreciate, and I'm sure the thousands of people listening also really appreciate this very special opportunity to hear from Perth's most successful property developer in the last decade. And I wish you all the best on these new projects you're starting up. I know a little bit about them. I'm super excited to hear about them being launched soon. And I'm very proud to call you a colleague and see what you're achieving on a daily basis in Western Australia. Well done, and thank you for coming in. Thanks, Trent. This is going to be an exciting time ahead and a lot of good things going on at the moment. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!